0: Greetings friends and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker and you're listening to this podcast produced by Media Gratii and you can find more about that ministry and about the podcast as a whole at mediagratii.org/podcasts where you'll also have a chance to sign up to a weekly newsletter where you'll get the text of this featured sermon from Spurgeon's output as well as other information. If you want to follow us on or Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. You can also find some regular quotes there. But the intention of this podcast is to walk with you through the published sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, primarily from, first of all, the New Park Street Pulpit and now the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit, We're now in volume 17. I hope you will join with us reading day by day through those sermons. And this week we're reading 969 to 975. Of course, we recognise that not everybody is uh, willing or able to maintain that kind of pace. But if you'd like to just join us for one sermon a week... There's a featured sermon that's also uh, available through that newsletter and the Twitter page. Uh, This week it's 973, a sermon entitled The Power of Christ Illustrated by the Resurrection. If you're listening to this podcast for the first time, please do leave a review or a rating. If you're listening to it as a as a regular, please do the same. We'd we'd love to hear from you, and it's also helpful to us to have those reviews and ratings on your favorite podcast app. But that brings us now to this week's sermon, The Power of Christ Illustrated by the Resurrection. It was delivered at the end of January 1871, a Lord's Day morning, the 29th of January, preached by Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Now Spurgeon's uh, text is a short one, but the, uh, the verses that he's attached uh, to the sermon, uh, Philippians 3:20 20 and 21, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he's able even to subdue all things unto himself. And it's that last phrase, really, uh, that he wants to focus on, the working whereby Christ is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Beloved, he begins, how intimately is the whole of our life interwoven with the life of Christ? His first coming has been to us salvation and we are delivered from the wrath of God through him. We live still because he lives and never is our life more joyous than when we look most steadily to him. The completion of our salvation in the deliverance of our body from the bondage of corruption, the raising of our dust to a glorious immortality is also wrapped up with the personal resurrection and quickening power of the Lord Jesus. His point is that wherever you look in our experience of salvation, from its first beginnings to its glorious completings, it is in connection with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that leads the preacher to desire to impress upon the minds of his his hearers, and even upon his own mind, he says, the need of our abiding in him. As zealous laborers for the glory of God, I am peculiarly anxious that you may maintain daily communion with Jesus, for as it is with our covenant blessings, so it is with our work of faith and labor of love, everything depends upon him. All our fruit is found in Jesus. Remember his own words, without me ye can do nothing. Our power to work comes wholly from his power. If we work effectually, it must always be according to the effectual working of Christ's power in us and through us. Always this is the case. Where he is, souls are taken by the fishes of men, but nowhere else. Not the preaching of his servants alone, not the gospel of itself alone, but his presence with his servants is the secret of success. So Spurgeon's going to emphasize here the resurrection, the physical resurrection as the evidence of uh, Christ's power, but he wants to uh, apply that to spiritual resurrection, also the granting of life to those who are dead. So several things to notice in the text. First of all, the marvel to be wrought by our Lord at his coming. And then to gather from it in the second place helps to consider the power which is now at this time proceeding from him and treasured in him. And then thirdly, to contemplate the work which we desire to see accomplished and which we believe will be accomplished on the ground of the power resident in our Lord. So the resurrection itself, then the, uh, the power that is now evident from Christ in anticipation of the resurrection and then what we want to see that power accomplish now. So the resurrection is coming, and that will demonstrate Christ's power. Christ now has that power, and what we want to see now in anticipation of the coming resurrection. So there's a, a logical sequence there, looking ahead to what will happen, remembering what is now the case, and thinking about what we desire between the now and the now. And the then. So, first of all, consider believingly the marvel which is to be wrought by our Lord at his coming. When he comes a second time, he will change our vile body and fashion it like unto his glorious body. Now, Spurgeon's going to do something here which he often does. He's just going to take off like a rocket. He is going to soar uh, in terms of his theology and his experience, his vocabulary. Uh, and yet he's going to testify all the way through that he's falling short of what he's trying to say, uh, which is one of those things which sometimes leaves us saying, wow, if, if a man as gifted as Spurgeon falls short, uh, then we're really only going to be able to hang on to his coattails. Uh, but it's important for us to remember, even as preachers, that the, the kind of gifts that Spurgeon has still left him saying, I cannot fully express what it is I want to express. So when we're feeling that our words have failed, that our comprehension has been beggared by the stuff that we're handling, that's a, not a bad thing. It, it's good that we should stumble over our words sometimes. It's good that we should have thoughts that our words cannot encompass because it shows that we're understanding the truth in some measure. And so Spurgeon wants us to understand that we're going to have the body of Christ's glory given to us in the place of our present vile body. Whatever the body of Jesus may be in his glory, our present body, which is now in its humiliation, is to be conformed to that body. Jesus is the standard of man in glory. Now, can we have any sense of this? Well, says Spurgeon, "'Take a glimpse through three windows, "'the face of Moses when he came down from the mountain, "'the three disciples on the mountain of transfiguration, "'and the face of Stephen when he gazed into the coming glory.'" These three transient gleams of the morning light may serve as tokens to us to help us form some faint idea of what the body of the glory of Christ and the body of our own glory will be. Because through those windows you get some glimpse not only of the glory that they saw but the impact that it had upon them in Moses having to cover his face, in Stephen's face gleaming like an angel, and then at the the thing that the disciples saw when Christ himself was transformed before them and something of his coming glory shone out in that moment. Or he says, turn to that marvellous passage in the Corinthians wherein the veil seems to be more unlifted than it ever has been before or since and you'll get a few particulars. So the body is going to be incorruptible in its glorious newness, while below it's corruptible, subject to decay. It gradually becomes weak through old age. At last yields to the blows of death falls into the ground, but not so the glorious body. That shall not be subject to any process of disease, decay or decline. It shall never, through the lapse of ages, yield to the force of death. For the immortal spirit... That body shall be the immortal companion. Then he says, Remember that it will be raised a spiritual body, adapted to the noblest portion of our nature, suitable as the dwelling place and instrument of our newborn grace-given life. The body is going to be wrought again by the Holy Ghost as the temple of the Holy Spirit in a way that is not... is Even now, while that is true is not fully reflected in our present humanity. And then the body is going to be raised painless. Does it not sometimes appear to the children of sickness as if this body were fashioned with a view to suffering, as if all its nerves, sinews, veins, pulses, vessels and valves were parts of a curious instrument upon which every note of the entire gamut of pain might be produced? Now, Bear in mind that at this point Spurgeon's going into a season of sickness and he understands this and and sickness and pain are very much a part of his experience. So he's talking out of his uh, own understanding. Patience then, he says, you who linger in this shattered tenement, a house not made with hands, awaits you. The righteous shall be like Christ, he encourages us, of whom it is still true that not a bone of him shall be broken, so not a part of our body after its chain shall be bruised, battered, or otherwise than perfect. So he says, drawing on the Philippian language, drawing on the Corinthian language, put it all together, brothers, and what a stretch it is from this vile body to the body of glory which yet shall be. When Christ comes, this miracle of miracles shall be wrought in the twinkling of an eye. Heap up epithets descriptive of the vileness of this body. Think of it in all its weakness, infirmity, sin, and liability to death, and then admire our Lord's body in all its holiness, happiness, purity, perfection, and immortality, and know assuredly that, at Christ's coming, This change shall take place upon every one of the elect of God. It's going to be a momentary change. Imagine the change should occur to you now. What a display of power it would be. And he says, my imagination fails to give you a picture of the transformation. But he wants to emphasize that if you think of this occurring to those who are alive when Christ comes, the miracle will be amazing. Yes, a very large number of the saints, when the Lord shall appear a second time, will already be in their graves. Some of these will have been buried long enough to become corrupt, but but already there are going to be those who are alive and remain. What then of those who have been corrupted in the grave? What are those mouldering relics of the saints' humiliation? What of those who have been scattered in in fires, those who have been cast into the sea, those have been torn apart, those whose present humanity is, is as far scattered as it's possible to imagine. Consider the power of the Lord Jesus when, by a word, the omniscient Lord of Providence who tracks every molecule of matter, who knows its position in history as a shepherd, its sheep— calls back together all the humanity of all his people not only to bring it to one place but in that moment of collection to make it a moment of transformation so that the glory that is his is known in them God is able then to cause that the same body which on earth we wear in our humiliation which we call a vile body shall be fashioned like unto Christ's body no difficulties, however stern, that can be suggested from science or physical law shall for a single instant stand in the way of the accomplishment of this transformation by Christ the King. And here's his, here's his inability. What marvels rise before me, he confesses. Indeed, it needs faith, and we thank God we have it. The resurrection of Christ has forever settled in our minds beyond all controversy, the resurrection of all who are in him. And he says, I know how feebly I've spoken upon this sublime subject, but I'm not regretful altogether of that, for I do not wish to fix your thoughts on my words for a single moment, but I want your minds to grasp and grapple with the great thought of the power of Christ. So then the resurrection holds before us this moment in which Christ will gather together all his people from across time and space, those who are living, those more recently and longer dead, and in a moment by the word of his power they shall be transformed so that their vile bodies cease to be vile and become glorious like his. And so he says... That power, secondly, which is to raise the dead, is resident in Christ at this moment. See the wonderful logic of it. This is the power that will be displayed. He has that power now. It is ascribed to him as the Saviour. We look for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus when Christ raises the dead it will be as a saviour and it is precisely in that capacity that we need the exercise of his power at this moment. There's that shift, there's that transfer. Here's the resurrection power that Christ will yet reveal, that power is in him now and it's the power that we desire to see. My brothers, how large may our prayers be then for the conversion of the sons of men. How great our expectations, how confident our efforts. Nothing is too hard for our Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing in the way of saving saving work is beyond his power. The resurrection is to be according to the working of his mighty power, and that same energy is in operation now. In its fullness the power dwells in him so let us stir him up let us cry unto him mightily and give him no rest till he put forth that selfsame power now you see he's working from what i think oh this this seems a bit a bit off but working from the greater to the lesser what he's saying is if christ can do all of that in one glorious moment for all his people can he not now one after the other, make those who are dead in their sins to be alive by his spirit. The power which will work the resurrection will be wonderful, but it will be no new thing. If you look in Ephesians chapter 1, that's the point the Apostle Paul makes there, that the same power that is at work in Christ in his resurrection is already at work in God's people. So note next then that the the terms of our text imply that opposition may be expected to this power but all resistance will be overcome something is going to have to be subdued a force will be conquered and brought into subjection there will be no opposition to the resurrection says Spurgeon the trumpet sound shall bring the dead from their graves but to spiritual resurrection there is resistance and yet What Christ subdues when he he overcomes death in the resurrection, he can subdue when he brings to life those who are dead in sins. If there be opposition to the gospel he is able to subdue it. If in one man there is prejudice, if in another man the heart is darkened with error, if one man hates the very name of Jesus, if another is so wedded to his sins that he cannot part from them, if opposition has assumed in some a very determined character, does not the text meet every case? Isn't that encouraging for us, brothers and sisters? There's not a person whom Christ cannot subdue if he sets forth his power. He is able to subdue all things, to conquer them, to break down the power, the barriers that interpose to prevent the display of his power, and to make those very barriers the means of setting forth that power the more gloriously. He is able even to subdue all things. Oh, take this to the mercy seat, you who will be seeking the souls of men this month. Take it to him and plead this word of the Holy Spirit in simple, childlike faith. When there is a difficulty you cannot overcome, take it to him, for he is able to subdue. Then notice again how he's hanging on to his text, that the language of it includes all supposable cases. He is able to subdue all things unto himself, not just here and there one, but all things. No boastful Goliath can stand before our David. Though the weapon that he, which he uses today be but a stone from the brook, yet shall the Philistine be subdued. If there should be in this place a deist, an atheist, a Romanist, or even a lover of the devil, if he be but a man, mercy yet can come to him. Jesus Christ is able to subdue him unto himself. And then, nothing is said concerning the unfitness of the means. Here is concentrating again the power by which he's able to subdue all All things to himself. He is able to subdue all things unto himself. We complain about our faultiness, our unworthiness. It's true, but it's Jesus who does it. Jesus can do it, will do it all. By the feeblest means, our Lord can work mightily, can take hold of us, unfit as we are for service, and make us fit, can grasp us in our folly and teach us wisdom, take us in our weakness and make us strong. Again, what a wonderful encouragement this is. And notice again, the ability is said in the text to be present with the Saviour now. Here's that thrust, that central emphasis. What he will do At the resurrection is the demonstration of a power that he already possesses. There are no ebbs and flows with the power of him according to which working he is able to subdue all things unto himself omnipotence is in the hand that once was pierced permanently abiding there oh if we could but rouse it if we could but bring the captain of the host to the field again to fight for his church to work by his servants what marvels should we see for he is able we are not straitened in him we are straitened in ourselves constrained in ourselves if straitened at all He's he's mourning over the fact that we don't see what we long to see and he's reminding himself and the people that it is all in Christ what we need. Your comfort then should come from remembering the fact that though there may have been a period in which few have been converted to Christ, that in itself is no proof that his power is slackening. The peaks and the troughs in the experience of the church of Jesus Christ are not peaks and troughs in the power of the church's Christ. No, it is by his sovereign will and purpose that he determines what he will do, and so as the resurrection will occur when he is ready, so now he saves when he is ready. but says Spurgeon, what then do we do? Let us cry unto our Lord, for he has but to will it, and tens and thousands of sinners will be saved. Let us lift up, tens of thousands. Hey, let put my mistake in the text: tens of thousands of sinners. let us lift up our hearts to him who has but to speak the Word, and whole nations shall be born unto Christ. Oh, says Spurgeon, I wish I had the time, this is a preacher's complaint, I wish I had the time to work out the parallels between the resurrection and the subduing of all things. It will be worked by the divine power, and the subduing of sinners is a precisely similar instance of salvation. Yes, many are corrupt with vice, but Christ can transform them. Some of them are as lost to all hope as the bodies scattered to the winds, but he who raises the dead of all sorts can raise sinners." So all that uh, illustration that he's been bringing out of the uh, Corinthian language especially, he says all of that can be transferred to this spiritual reality. But again, focusing on the one thing, my anxious desire is to engrave this one thought upon your hearts, my brothers and sisters. Yes, to write it on the palms of those hands with which you are about to serve the Lord. Learn it and forget it not. Here's the point, friends almighty power lies with Jesus to achieve the purpose upon which our heart is set namely the conversion of many unto himself and so very briefly he concludes the work which we desire to see accomplished and he's very good uh, when he's Um, well-oiled in this sense of of transitioning, this is what we want to see, this is the desire that we have accomplished, that the ending of the previous point moves almost seamlessly here into the third and concluding point. Brothers, he says, we long to see the Saviour subduing souls unto himself not just to our way of thinking, not to our church, not to the honour of our powers of persuasion. It is not enough just to have people fall into our train. We do not want men to be followers of us. We do not simply want to... To boost the membership numbers of our congregation. We do not want the applause of those who think we are eloquently persuasive. We want disciples of Jesus Christ. He is able to subdue all things to himself. Oh, sinner, says Spurgeon, how I wish you were subdued to Jesus, to kiss those dear feet that were nailed for you, to love in life him who loved you to the death. That would be a blessed subjection. Never the subject of an earthly monarch so happy in his king as you would be. God is our witness. We who preach the gospel, we do not want to subdue you to ourselves as though we would rule you and be lords over your spirits. It is to Jesus, to Jesus only, that we would have you subdued. And then this subjection is eminently to be be desired because it consists in transformation. And again, he's back in his text. He's never straying far from the scriptures here. He transforms the vile body into his glorious body. And that's a part of the subjection of all things under himself. But it's Is is it not a subjection to be longed after with an insatiable desire to be so subdued to Christ, though, that I, a poor, vile sinner, may become like him? And that's what we want for the unconverted. We felt it ourselves. We want others to feel it too. And it's Christ who not only can give us a body like his, but even now can begin to work the transformation of our souls, giving us newness of life and then making us more and more like himself by the inward working of his spirit. And this then, in subjecting to being subjected to Christ, is to be fitted for heaven. The body of the glory is a body fitted for glory, a body which participates in glory. The Lord Jesus can make you sinner, though now fitted for hell, fitted for heaven, fitted for glory and breathe into you now an anticipation of that glory in the joy and peace of mind which his pardon will bring to you. In a few moments I'm going to give you Spurgeon's own conclusion but I trust that this has been a blessing to you. I trust that seeing not just the the hope of the transformation of our bodies but remembering that that power by which Christ will raise his people from the dead and make them like himself is in him now and is working for the salvation of sinners and is to be pleaded as the very power that the church craves that we may see Christ glorified in drawing sinners after himself. So if you're appreciating these podcasts, please do follow along. Please do uh, join us again next week. Next week it's sermons 976 to 982 and 976, the Sermon on the Wedding Garment, will be our featured sermon. But let me leave you with Spurgeon's conclusion and I hope it will carry you into the week to come with hope and with confident expectation. Brothers... We have been earnestly seeking to capture some hearts that are here present, to capture them for Jesus. It has been a long and weary siege up till this hour. We have summoned them to surrender and opened fire upon them with the gospel, but as yet in vain. I have striven to throw a few live shells into the very heart of their city in the form of warning and threatening and exhortation. I know there have been explosions in the hearts of some of you which have done your sins some damage, killed some of the little ones that would have grown up to greater iniquity. You have been carefully blockaded by providence and grace. Your hearts have found no provision for joy in sin, no helps to peace in unrighteousness. How I wish I could starve you out until you would yield to my Lord, the crown prince, who again today demands that you yield to him. It is dreadful to compel a city to open its gates unwillingly to let an enemy come in, for however gentle be the enemy, his face is an unwelcome sight to the vanquished. But oh, how I wish I could burst open the gates of a sinner's heart today for the Prince Emmanuel to come in. He who is at your gates is no alien monarch, he is your rightful prince, he is your friend and lover." It will not be a strange face that you will see when Jesus comes to reign in you. When the king and his beauty wins your soul, you will think yourselves a thousand fools that you did not receive him before. Instead of fearing that he will ransack your soul, you will open all its doors and invite him to search each room. You will cry, take all thou blessed monarch, it shall be most mine when it is thine, take all and reign and rule. I propound terms of capitulation to you, O sinner, they are but these. Yield up yourself to Christ, give up your works and ways, both good and bad, and trust in him to save you, and be his servant, henceforth and forever. While I thus invite you, I trust he will speak through me to you, and win you to himself. I shall not plead in vain, the word shall not fall to the ground." I fall back upon the delightful consolation of our text. He is able to subdue all things unto himself. May he prove his power this morning. And we say, and in these and coming days, Amen and Amen.